Hello, I'm Matt Quinn. Thanks for joining us again for Decision Point from Ivy Publishing at the Ivy Business School. Today, I'm excited to be talking with Rob Austin, an information systems professor at Ivy. Rob discusses this year's Ivy Publishing best-selling case, Digital Transformation at GE, What Went Wrong, as well as the acceleration of digital transformation efforts at the outset of the global pandemic. Our conversation also touches such topics as strategic disruption, looking for and following compelling case stories, translating and scaling complex issues into readable and easily understandable cases, and teaching cases in tandem. We conclude our discussion with Rob's thoughts on the evolution of the case method and his advice for new case authors. I hope you enjoy it. Rob, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, let's dive into the case Digital Transformation at GE, What Went Wrong? Last year, it was the Ivy Publishing best-selling case uh, for the most recent academic year. Why, do you th why did you write it, and why do you think it really resonated with audiences? Yeah, so I, uh, I wrote it because I think it's a very, very interesting story on, of a topic that a lot of people are interested in right now. Uh, you know, uh, the story of GE, uh, I think everybody, uh, pretty much everybody knows that Jack Welch, who was the CEO until 2001, was highly regarded. Uh, one of the business magazines declared him the best manager of the 20th century uh, when he retired. Uh, and of course, those would be hard shoes to fill. Uh, and the, the job for that fell to Jeffrey Immelt. Uh, Jeffrey Immelt, uh, in about 2010, 2011, began to develop a very intriguing vision of uh, how GE would become, as he called it, one of the top 10 software companies. So uh, this was a story about a company, and the way people talked about it is that this is a story about a company that is preemptively transforming itself. It's not waiting for others to force it. Uh, it's developing its own vision, and they were kind of the poster child for the right way to do this. And the vision, you know, when I've taught the case, everybody agrees that the vision is really intriguing. Uh, he was trying to make GE into a company like Amazon or Google. But about October of 2018, everything just fell apart. And, uh, you know, since then, GE has had a, a very tough time of it. They've had a cash crunch, which was totally alien to General Electric. And so, you know, it went from being they're the poster child for digital transformation success to them being kind of a cautionary tale about biting off too much or overhyping digital transformation or something. And that, I think, is the heart of the case, right? Uh, trying to understand what went wrong, which is in the title of the case. Uh, and I just think a lot of people are interested in that story. Uh, it's a good story. And and how much do you think, you know, of course, the last 18 months have had, you know, disruption is everywhere. We're seeing it in the news. We're seeing it in, uh, you know, the Harvard Business Review, the Ivy Business Journal. Uh, you know, how much of the timing of this case do you think has contributed to, to the success or is business kind of catching up now with, you know, the need to self-disrupt or how to manage it? Yeah, I think that probably is a factor that, you know, one of the things that's frequently been observed about the COVID-19 pandemic 
is that it has accelerated uh, digital transformation efforts. So I think there are companies that were, uh, you know, people who were thinking about this as something that they would eventually have to do that in the time of pandemic have suddenly decided that they must do it sooner than they thought. And so, uh, you know, I think it just makes this GE story all the more relevant. Uh, it's a story of an established firm trying to do what they all think they may now have to do even sooner. Now, in the process of writing the case and obviously teaching it, uh, you're likely noticing a lot of emerging issues, uh, the things that are unique to digital transformation, uh, disruption. What are some of those emerging issues that leaders and managers are, are really forced to deal with? Well, I think the whole issue of digital transformation is incompletely in understood by a lot of practicing managers. I think, you know, there's this thing going on out in the world that I sometimes refer to as a new chapter in the strategy textbook that it, it's, you know, it goes by a lot of different names, platform economy, platform dynamics, uh, platform competition. Uh, and generally it refers to what's going on with companies like Google and Facebook and uh, Amazon uh, in China, WeChat, Tencent, Alibaba, and the like. But they do, I would argue, they do compete. And I'm not the only one that argues this. They compete differently than traditional, what you might call pipeline firms. So I often draw a contrast between platform firms and pipeline firms. And by pipeline, I mean, you know, these are companies that take raw materials and transform them and then sell a, a value-added product onto a group of customers, whether uh, consumers or businesses. Uh, doesn't really matter. That's a pipeline business model. Uh, platform business models are more about connecting and growing networks and leveraging network effects. And, uh, you know, the reason I think this is important is because I think there's whole generations of very good managers, very experienced managers out there that haven't yet uh, got their heads around how big a change this is. And mm -hmm. what's great about the GE case, in my one of the things that I, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to write about it is because GE did get it. They understood that if they didn't do something, uh, SAP, Microsoft, uh, Google, somebody was going to jump between them and their customers. Um, so it was, uh, you know, they were worried, and I think legitimately so, that in the industrial Internet of Things space, Microsoft or, or Google or someone might do to them what Microsoft did to a lot of other companies when they captured the desktop standard in the 1980s. You know, they rode that from being a tiny company to a, a, a one of the biggest companies in the world in the, in a, you know, across two or well, three decades really. And so GE realized that if they were able to do that, the, uh, you know, with the industrial internet of things standard, then GE was going to be relegated to being sort of a second order firm. Uh, and that is the potential fate for a lot of other established firms. So, so there's an urgency, I think, to people, you know, confronting this issue and getting their heads around it. And it, like you said, it is so relevant uh, in a lot of industries. So yeah, it really hits a lot of marks. Now, do you think about that when you're thinking of writing Kate and you've wrote quite a number of cases is hot topic, is it relevant across a number of industries? Do you think about that when you write a case or are you 
do you typically go to? It's a great story that's relevant to you. Yeah, I think I have done, you know, yeah, yeah you're right. I've, I've probably written dozens of cases. I haven't done a count in a long time. But, uh, but I think I have historically done more of the latter than the former that made, you know, more of the story approach. You know, this just looks so interesting. I have to go learn more about it. Uh, I do, you know, mostly look for cases that are in my general area of interest, whether it's research or teaching or both. But, uh, but I think I've been relatively, it's been relatively less frequent in my case writing that I've said, I have a slot to fill in session four of this particular case. And here are the learning objectives for that session. Let me go find a, a case that helps me teach that. Um, I can think uh, of some examples of that in cases I've written, but far more often, I think it's more of an exploration. Okay. Uh, it's me trying to figure out what's interesting. So you're pulling on the thread and seeing what comes up there and then uh, just really listening to the narrative of the, of the story that's being told to you too. Yeah, that's right. And often I am not sure what the focus of the case will be when I start in. Uh, that's part of what I'm trying mm -hmm. to figure out. And, you know, what's the focus? What's the learning objectives? I, I have a sense that there's something really important here, but I don't necessarily know what it is when I start in. Well, and that's and that's, I think, good advice for a new case writer, like follow the story, let it almost like uh, expose uh, the real learnings and the objectives as you dig into it, let it tell you the story too. Yeah, I would definitely endorse that approach. Now, when you're writing a case like that, and, you know, in this case in particular, you know, did any challenges arise in, in the process? How did you overcome those, those challenges? Particular case, the, the biggest challenge was how do you fit this into 10 pages of text and five exhibits or, you know, five pages of exhibits? Uh, and, you know, just to give you an idea, before I wrote this case, there's a really excellent case by Kareem Lakani that is a Harvard Business School case that is, it's set a, a few years earlier, but it's also about GE's digital transformation. But his case is like 35 pages long. Uh-huh. I mean, just because the story's so big, right? And, uh, you know, frankly, there's some practical problems with using a 35-page long case, uh, especially with undergrads, but in general, even with execs, right? 35 pages is a lot to ask people to read. Yep. Now, how did you do it, like, tactically? How did Was it constantly reminding yourself to cut and, and edit? Uh, were there some other tactics that you employed to get it down to a more manageable level and make it uh, more simple uh, in narrative? Well, my, my specific approach usually is to, in this one, I, I should note, I, I worked with a student on this who did the first pass. But even when I work with students, my advice to them is go find everything you think is interesting, pile it into a file, organize it under, you know, the headings that you think are emerging. And often the headings from case to case are similar, right? So there's usually an opening. There's usually a background. Often there's a section about competition uh, and, and so on. So pile it all in there and organize it a bit. And what you typically realize is that the case is about two and a half times as long as it should be. Uh, that you <laughs> yeah. can never 
you know, you could never publish it at this length. So you have to go in there and, you know, some of it you can do through writing. Uh, you know, if you're, if you've got a lot of quotes, not every quote needs to be a quote. You can often express it more economically by translating quotes into, uh, prose, you know, your prose, uh, quotes. I think you reserve that, that space for quotes that, you know, are, are points or things that are very insightful that you want to put in the words of the characters in the case. So you can shorten it part of the way that way, but then you reach a point where the case is still significantly too long. And you love everything that's still there. And then the hard part comes is you have to, you have to do two things. I think you have to start to think really hard about how you're going to teach the case because how you teach the case determines what needs to be in there. Uh, so you can take things out that you don't need pedagogically, but you also just have to be willing to, you know, the, I think it's not my phrase, uh, somebody else invented a long time ago. You have to be willing to kill your darlings, right? Kill the <laughs> things that you can't part with uh, until, uh, until you've got it into a containable length. And with a story as big as the GE story, it's really hard. Uh, when there's an Oscar Wilde quote, right, that he uh, starts a letter or so the story goes by saying, I'm sorry, this is such a long letter. If I'd had more time, it would have been shorter. Yeah. <laughs> same, same principle, right? Yeah. Simple and shorter is really, really hard to do. Um, you know, I want to take a little bit of a, a side note because you mentioned teaching and, and you know, how you're going to teach it can inform how you write it. Uh, and I know that you've used this particular case in tandem with others, which is a great way to, to utilize cases. Can you walk us through how you've taught this case and uh, in tandem, I know you've used it with the Siemens case and a JP Morgan Chase case as well. Uh, what are some of the advantages and maybe some disadvantages of that? Yeah, I very much like to use the GE case alongside uh, a case. Uh, it's by Ning Su. Uh, it's called uh, it's called Siemens Canada Digital Transformation. Uh, Digital Transformation, and uh, I, you know. It's a great pairing because Siemens, if you ask GE who its biggest competitor was in most categories that it competes in, they would probably say Siemens. And if you ask Siemens the same question, I, I, my guess is that they would say GE. And so these are you know comparable companies because they're in similar businesses, but they're also very different in many ways. Uh, obviously, one's based in the US, one's based in Germany. But they're also, you know, uh, stylistically very different. Uh, yeah. GE is very financially oriented. Uh, Siemens is very kind of engineering geeky oriented. Um, they, uh, their, their approaches to digital transformation were very different. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know that Siemens would say they're finished yet, but they definitely have not experienced the sort of everything going off the rails problem that, that GE has has experienced. Mm -hmm. So it's just a it's a very effective strategy, I think, for teaching to compare similar companies that have gone about roughly the same task in very different ways. It's just kind of, you know, the old exam question, compare and contrast, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's the idea. Um, I've also used it a lot with the JP Morgan Chase open banking case because that gives you an opportunity to look at a specific industry banking and how they're dealing with the 
you know, the entry into their space of those same tech platform companies, right? Google, Apple, Amazon are all entering into banking in the, uh, you know, the incumbent banks like JP Morgan Chase, uh, they have to, uh, they figure, have to figure out what to do about it and what they're going to do about it probably isn't just imitate the tech platforms because they've got a lot of legacy constraints. Uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's a good, uh, it's a question that a lot of, uh, existing firms are having to confront and specifically one of the topics we touch on there is if you're not going to be able to do it all yourself, uh, who are your partners and who are your rivals and are the people that you thought were your rivals, actually your partners and, and vice mm. versa. No, oh, that's interesting. And, uh, you know, that, that partner versus rival and how that can evolve over time, you know, as, as the world shifts, you know, things are constantly changing for organizations. Now, I want to change the lens a little bit from looking at different industries and, and companies you just mentioned, you know, banking as, as one. I'd like to talk a little bit about cases and case method and the evolution. And I know uh, you and I have had some great conversations about, you know, new ways to write and deliver cases and how the method's evolving. You know, what do you foresee as after the last 18 months of going online? We've tried some new things. What are you seeing on the horizon for, for case method and case writing? Well, the, the last 18 months or so, you know, uh, it's it's been a jolt. It's been, uh, it's knocked us, the pandemic I'm talking about, of course, it's knocked us out of our usual patterns and our usual ways of teaching. And yeah, there's a historical fact that I've done some research in this area that these kinds of jolts often lead to significant innovations. And, you know, for me, I've always really liked writing cases and developing cases, partly because I like to think of cases as a living form, uh, mm -hmm. you know, an incomplete project, a still evolving form. Uh, one of my former colleagues when I was at Harvard, David Garvin, a uh, really great case writer, great teacher, uh, he, uh, he used to say, unfortunately, he's not with us anymore, but he used to say that uh, a case is a literary work intended to be discussed. And he compared it to a play script, which he called a literary work that is intended to be acted out on a stage. And so if you think about, you know, what are the various formats of a thing intended to be discussed, there's a lot of scope for experimentation. Uh, some of the experimenting I've done over the years, uh, you know, the iPremiere case, which has been widely used, it was the first graphic novel case that uh, it was published by Harvard. And I remember when I first pr presented the idea there, uh, there were some people who had a reaction like, okay, you want to write a comic book and put the Harvard logo on it? I'm not so <laughs> sure about that, right? But but it has been, you know, uh, really very a very successful case over, you know, more than a decade. And then, uh, but we've also recently, you know, we've experimented with pure audio cases, which are compelling in their own way because of the power of voices, right? Hearing someone tell their story uh, is uh, is another kind of striking and engaging kind of uh, 
way to draw someone into uh, some business issues and some business questions. So uh, some of the most intriguing experiments I've seen have been in places where the case method is new. Uh, mm. I did a case teaching seminar once in Pune, India, and had a lunch conversation with a guy who was doing some really interesting experiments in terms of translating the case method into medical contexts. Um, and part of the reason he was able to do it is because he just wasn't fixed in his ways, right? He wasn't he, had, he wasn't hugely experienced, but that was also that was also a, a freedom that he had. Hmm. When when you look outside of cases and case method, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, how are you consuming books and movies and games, etc.? You know, where are some places that we could look for inspiration? Like, where do you look at and go, wow? That is a really cool way to tell a story. Uh, anything come to mind? Well, I definitely do look at movies and plays and books, you know, that are, you know, not necessarily in the business genre. So I, uh, I do think, uh, you know, I've, I, I've often, when I've taught case teaching seminars, pointed out that both cases and case discussions have plots very much in the same way that a book does or a movie does or a play does. And that one of the reasons that cases are powerful as a form of learning is the same, it's the same reason that that, you know, that movie you love because there's a weird plot twist at the end that mm -hmm. makes you go, wow. Cases work the same way. You know, students come into class having read the case and analyzed it some and thinking that they've concluded things that are pretty solid. But then in, in the course of listening to their classmates and understanding the way they've thought about it, you know, with the orchestration of a, of a careful facilitator, they start to shift what they think, right? So they shift their interpretations, they shift their conclusions, and they shift what they recommend in terms of action. So there's a real power in that kind of reversal uh, that, you know, in a, in a dramatic form is a plot twist, but in a case discussion, it's, oh my gosh, I think I'm changing my mind, right? I, I'm going to recommend the opposite of what I thought I was going to re recommend when I came to class today. And, you know, importantly, they come to that conclusion on their own, right? I mean, there is, they are listening to others and they're taking input, but they're making their own judgments. They're not just, you know, taking notes while a, while a professor lectures in uh, changing their mind that way. They're not being overwhelmed by facts or something to change their mind. They're reasoning on their own in deciding to, you know, arriving on their own at a different conclusion. So, um, you know, there are other alternate forms that I think are operate similarly to that. Uh, simulations is uh, simulations are a, a really intriguing thing that you know I've done a certain amount of. Uh, I think I've now designed three online simulations. Uh, Two of which are are already productized, and the other is in the uh, in the process of being productized, and they operate similarly. Simulations have an added advantage. You know, when you read a case and then come to class and talk about it, you have the advantage of having read the whole case and processed the whole thing. Whereas in a simulation, you often experience it all in real time, in the order that it would happen 
you know, out of order, out of the most convenient order. So, uh, you know, uh, you haven't had a time, you haven't had as much time as you have in a case discussion to organize everything and structure things and uh, analyze as much. You have to do your sense making, you know, in real time as things come at you. So I think simulations work a lot like case discussions in the sense that they are simulated real life, but they also move a step closer, I think, to actual experience. Yeah, there's like that active unveiling that you'd have of, of living it uh, almost through a simulation. Absolutely. And I, I would really encourage those that are, you know, just starting out in their case writing to, you know, take inspiration from their their day to day lives or their students lives. How are they consuming stories? And, you know, think of ways, pitch ideas to to us or other publishers to go, you know, I want to take this in a different direction and try it out. You know, the last thing I wanted to lean on on you with is, you know, you've got lots of experience. You've tried different ways of presenting uh, narratives. You know, if you could leave the listeners with an important piece of advice, uh, you know, especially those new case authors, you know, what would you have them consider? I think I would say to new case authors, uh, I would say, uh, don't be constrained. Don't be formulaic. Uh, you don't have to follow the same rules that, that someone else uh, has followed. I would say it's a good idea to read cases and especially cases that you like and cases that you like to teach. Uh, you know, one of the things that early in my career, I learned a lot uh, from a case teacher, uh, David Upton, who is a, was a professor at Harvard and then later at Oxford. And David, uh, he used to talk about cases that teach themselves. And, you know, he would talk about a particularly artfully written case. Uh, you could walk into class, you could ask an opening question, and Jen just sit back and let the discussion proceed because it's just going to go where it needs to go uh, anyway. Uh, I think it takes a while to get to that level of artistry, but read cases like that, right? When you've had a really successful experience teaching, try to understand why that case has led to that uh, successful experience. But then don't try to copy that, just try to learn from it and incorporate it into your own style. I think ultimately case writers and case teachers have to find their own voice, their own way into the form. Uh, it's not, you know, by copying part of the way one case writer does it, and part of the way another case writer does it. It's by finding your own approach, your own style. Well, that's great. And, and you know, Rob, a couple of things that I'm going to take away from this is, you know, find your own style, you know, make it your own, but then also let the case and let the story almost tell you, let it lead you uh, for how it wants to be written. And I think that's, uh, uh, you know, you've mentioned a couple of other great writers. Uh, for those that are listening, you can go onto the website. I'd encourage you to register and you'll have the ability to check out uh, Rob's cases and look at the teaching notes as well to see, get into the mind of, of Rob as the author and, and what he was thinking and how he uses these in the classroom. Thanks so much for, for taking the time. As always, Rob, you're a great colleague and you're always you know, willing to teach me and, 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 and get in front of the camera or in front of the microphone to, uh, to help others learn from your experiences. So I, I always appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me back and thanks for uh, for doing all that you do there and publishing you and your team.
Thanks very much. We'll talk to you soon. Or later. If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe to Decision Point on Spotify or wherever you listen. And be sure to check out the show notes for links to cases, resources, and more. Have any feedback? Send us an email at cases at iv.ca.